Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Teresa Robinson, and I'm on air with my co-hosts, Matt Schneeman, Jasmine Smith, and Sarah Weck. How's it going, guys? Very good. We're all together now. Sarah, you finally returned to Prodigal. (laughs) (laughs) Prodigal Son returns to New York. Yeah, it's weird to be back, but honestly, pretty good. Cool. Good to have yeah, you it's back. Nice to have you back, you in your car. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. But I've I've seen so much good stuff lately. Like I feel like there's such a neighborhood community vibe in Brooklyn right now because of everything that's been going on. So mm-hmm. it was, and it was so like I don't know, empty when I left. So it's good to be back and see people's faces. Awesome. So this week, we'll be talking about Patty Duke and Hot 97, the Blue Nile Dam dispute in Ethiopia, and the end of wild polio in Africa, and much more. So let's kick it off with today's local news story. Jasmine, what do you have for us today? All right. So this is a story that is connected to um, a very old murder case. I'm not sure if you all saw, but on HBO Max, there's a documentary called Yusuf Hawkins Storm Over Brooklyn about his murder 31 years ago. So this is connected to the recent firing of Patty Duke, whose real name is Pasquale Rauchi. Uh, The title of the article that I'm going to be summarizing for you is Hot 97 Fires Rap Radio Veteran for Ties to Yusuf Hawkins Killing by Joe Coscarelli. So Patty Duke worked at Hot 97, the hip hop station, for 21 years. He mostly worked behind the scenes and was both popular and well-liked by his co-workers. But it recently, it recently came to light that Rauchi was one of eight teenagers charged in the 1989 murder of Yusuf Hawkins, a black 16-year-old in Bensonhurst. So um, if you're not familiar with the story, Hawkins had traveled um, in the summertime on the night of August 23rd to Bensonhurst to look at a used car with some friends, but he ended up being killed by a bat-wielding mob of about 30 white young, young white men, and one of them shot him dead. Uh, It was due to the documentary that Rauchi's criminal history came to the radio station's attention. Uh, Rauchi, who's now 50 years old, was quickly fired. Uh, The station put out a statement that said, after watching HBO's storm over Brooklyn, Hot 97 was shocked and terminated its relationship with Patty Duke. Nothing is more important to Hot 97 than our role as a trusted community resource. The March for Social Justice continues. The company also claims that in an email sent to their staff that no one was aware of the situation until the airing of the HBO documentary. On social media, however, there were people in the Hot 97 orbit who expressed dismay and disbelief. And some said that they had learned years ago about Rauchi's role in the Hawkins murder. On his morning show, um, Ebro Darden and his co-hosts, uh, Laura Stiles and Pete Rosenberg, said that Rauchi had been working at the station long before they had been on since he was there for 25 years and mostly worked in production, recording and editing commercials. Ebro also said that he was unaware of um, Rauchi's real name. They just, he just knew him as Patty Duke. 
and he Darden also said that he had discussed the murder with Rauchy once and he and this is a quote he told me he got swept up in the Yusuf Hawkins situation he also told me he had nothing to do with it in a conversation that Darden said he had eight to ten years ago Rauchy was 19 at the time of the attack on Yusuf Hawkins and he went to trial for second-degree murder, manslaughter, discrimination, assault, rioting, and other crimes. Uh, you can actually you see footage of Rauchi in the documentary. He's a small guy with a baseball hat talking to the police, um, and he was telling him telling the cops that he was near the back of the group of um, youths that attacked Hawkins. In 1991, Rauchi was convicted of rioting, illegal imprisonment, menacing, and weapons possession, but he was acquitted of murder, manslaughter, and discrimination. A judge threw out the felony conviction, citing insufficient evidence, and sentenced him to probation and community service for possession of a bat as a weapon. Hawkins was, he was beaten, but he was actually killed by Joseph Fama, who shot him to death. Um, he was the gunman that was convicted of the murder and sentenced to 32 years to life in prison. So after being convicted um, in 1991, it was a few years later that Rauchi got a producer job at Hot 97, and he worked there ever since. Uh, Ebro Darden also said on air after Rauchi's firing that it was out of our control, but we apologize. And it uh, Yusuf Hawkins was murdered in 1989 on August the 23rd, and Patty Duke or Pasquale Rauchi was fired 31 years to the day after the murder. So yeah, that was, um, it might seem like a small local story, but I, I did watch the documentary. I watched it um, not with my family because we're not physically together, but we watched it at the same time because they you know, were alive and in Brooklyn at the time of that killing. So I, I thought it was a shocking revelation to come out that, you know, someone that worked at an institution that's such a big part of the black community in Brooklyn would have also been someone that was involved in this killing. What, what did, um, did, he was convicted, did he, uh, what did he, did he serve time or? No, like I had, I said that he had to um, serve probation, like he was put on probation and he had to do like community service, but he didn't actually go to jail. It's wild how documented it is. I, um, yeah, and he just, just cause he has like a radio name, um, it seems like he was, able to escape that past. Um, does it sound like a lot of people didn't know about it? Uh, in your retelling, you cited one person who was unaware of it. I mean, I, the radio station claims that they weren't aware of the history and the, like, Ebro Darden, his co-host, didn't know. Like, he was working there before they started working, so a lot of people didn't know. Um, there wasn't a person like specifically named who said that they did know in the article. It was just saying on, on social media that there were people who claimed to know. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, this is um, interesting because it happened so long ago. I was talking to some friends of mine at work the other day and they were re telling me about the story around Yusuf and how, you know, so many 
people who were involved in these previous cases similar to something like this where, you know, um, justice was not found or now either being found out or coming to the light or, you know, something of not necessarily coming to light, being brought to the light. Um, and it's interesting to see how this will pan out. Yeah, I think what this it, this stood out to me, like when you think about um I know, Teresa, you're going to talk about what happened in Kenosha, but there's a 17-year-old that that gunned down the protesters there in Wisconsin and how there's already this rush to be like, oh, he's a kid, he's this, he's that. But there's so many people, there's so many Patty Dukes that exist in the world and you just might not know their name or they may have been able to evade justice for many years, but there's a lot of people that are involved in a lot of heinous racist shit but you know they're able to go about their life as if nothing happened and it's it's wild and very depressing to me jasmine were you able to watch any of the footage from the documentary have you seen yeah it? I, I watched the whole thing yeah mm. did you like notice his presence like have you seen him talking yeah, I saw, I saw it. Like, I don't listen to, I know of Hot 97. I'm not a regular listener. I've heard his radio name. But in the documentary, like, I don't even, I don't but think that in the documentary that they say that this is, this is um, Pasquale Rauchy, also known as Patty Duke. Like, I wouldn't know what Patty Duke looks like. So right, you right. just see this young guy with his birth name talking about, like, how him and his friends, like, had these baseball bats looking to like I don't know if you all know the story but there was a young um, Italian woman in the neighborhood that was thought to be having a black boyfriend and some other black guys coming over for a birthday party and a gang of young white men in that neighborhood decided they were going to attack these guys but Yusuf came into the neighborhood like not knowing any of that and they just assumed that he was there for this white girl and that's why he was ganged up him and his friends were ganged up on and he was eventually shot so you see patty duke talking about what happened and that they had weapons and like what was going on but i had no idea until afterward that this guy was patty duke and that's what he looked like and all this other stuff so yeah that's interesting that the documentary i mean there, there are reasons narratively and and in, in terms of like crafting a documentary where you wouldn't want to take a left turn and be like, this person's now a DJ, but also that is a pretty like interesting and relevant detail. I'd be curious as to why um, they didn't want to go down that pathway during the documentary. Yeah, I'm just, I'm going from what I remember. There may have been like an asterisk, but it's not something that's discussed. Like they, but they have his name, you see him. So I guess that's enough. You know, there's people that worked with him all this time. Like they're going to see it and know. So that there was no way that people wouldn't have recognized him. Do you watch other movies with your family? Is this like a, a cute, like movie night thing that you all do together sometimes? Um, no, not really. I just thought to mention it because it's it's relevant to something that they like they were young people when this happened. So we were all like connected to knowing more about the story. The age, um, the age is is scary. Uh, 
you you referenced the the Kenosha kid, um, and that uh, Patty Duke was nineteen or so. Um, I I I know someone who uh, did something awful when he was nineteen. I remember when I was nineteen, and I don't think anyone should ever use age as a excuse to withhold justice and proper consequence and everything. But whenever I hear about these stories, it does scare me because of just kind of the ignorance and like um, that that can that can occur when you are that young and you know I don't know. What do you mean? Just that like when when you're that age, when you're young, uh, it's scary how awful <laughs> you can be. Like you're not done growing, right? Um, you're, but you're also very strong, right? Especially if you're like a white kid, uh, you have these like this power and these rights, and it's not matched with um, necessarily with your maturity and uh, and I just think that's scary to me. And so when I hear these stories, it just gives me a little bit of pause because it's, it's you know, it's just just a, a placement of power in, in a, you know, that, that can be so easily um, misapplied and whatnot. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think there's, isn't there, um, I can't remember his name, but there's some, I think he's a teenager. He might be like 19 and he ran for office somewhere, but it, like a few years ago when he was in high school or middle school, he had done like some revenge porn thing to a girl. Like, I don't really, like 19 is more than old enough to know that you shouldn't be threatening people with baseball bats or getting assault rifles and shooting people because you don't want them in your town. Like, I don't, I just think there's a lot of grace and like hand wringing around like when it's a young white person doing these things and I just don't Oh yeah it, yeah. it scares me that they have the ability to do these things but I there's plenty of people that are immature but their immaturity doesn't turn out like that and I don't <laughs> believe a lot of these people grow out of these attitudes they just grow up and then they become like I don't know, like police chiefs or bosses that have these same attitudes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm certainly not excusing or uh, an advocate of the Brock Turners of the world or or this, you know, boys will be boys mentality. Um, I'm just speaking from like, um, I don't know. It's just it's just a reality that like, especially like young white men are given too much leeway and too much power and and that's a scary thing because things like this these attacks occur because of that right um and the irony is that people and, actually, and i don't think that's ever addressed well the irony is that people actually defend these young white males when they are doing this saying that it is you know self-defense or that's all that they could do when they skip over the fact that they had a rifle shooting it at people that they cross state lines to do these things. And, and then they just walk right past the police after they shot someone. Oh, you shot somebody. Okay. We got to lock you up. And then we let you out as if this whole thing is not illegal and wrong and just really sideways. Like if you can tell, I'm quite pissed off with that part of the story, but um, I just think it's really awful that 
the youth are the people we're talking about here. People who are young and growing and growing with the idea that it's okay to have this type of behavior towards anyone. Like, where do they get that mm -hmm. from? You know, you don't just wake up feeling like you want to go out and kill people. It comes from somewhere. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And there, there is a way that, you know, even if a white man isn't a teenager, like when that whole thing with the Olympic swimmer like Ryan Lochte came out, that man, I think, was like 30 something. And people were referring to him in the news as, oh, he's a kid that made a mistake. And it's like there's always this extra grace afforded to white men and also white people in general of not knowing any better or not being mature enough as if it's a mistake to do these things like it's a youthful indiscretion and it's like too many people have to suffer while you're growing up and figuring out how to not do like heinous shit like it's just not an excuse you know and there's so many black and brown people that never get that benefit of the doubt you know we see it in the headlines and the the way people are portrayed like by the New York Post and other magazines and papers, you know, once they're the victim of brutality or if they've killed someone, you know, it really depends on your color, like who is given the space where it's like, oh, like, let's have a thought for how immature and how little they knew at the time. Yeah, it's also like the self-defense double standard I've been seeing a ton. Like they're saying that the kid in Kenosha was acting in self or he was trying to protect people. And there's always this like language around white people with weapons as like protecting like the police and protection. And then if someone, if a black person owns a weapon just in general, that's always brought up. It's like, Oh, well they had something in their car, even if it wasn't on their person. And it's so frustrating to see that because it's just a double standard of, the way that we speak about this stuff yeah and like fear too it's like who gets who's allowed to be afraid for their life it's almost never the dead black person you know it's always like there's no reason you're not you don't cross a state line leave your home because you're afraid you do that because you're excited to kill someone you know, and it's not just a matter of like maturity or something that you're gonna grow out of. Like a lot of these people, their names just aren't everywhere, but there's many people that think and behave like Patty Duke did when he was a teenager and the way this Kenosha shooter did and the list goes on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Hear, hearing all this and kind of thinking about what I said earlier, I think like the actual deeper unsettling fear that I have isn't, as much about age, but is about me knowing that as like a white man, depending on how I grew up and who I was raised by, like it, you know, it, it scares me that I could be like a hate filled person with a gun. You know, I think that's what affects me when I hear these stories about these, uh, these, these people, these, you know, 17 year old, 19 year olds killing people killing black people because it's you know it's, well, it's scary you know well i'm gonna wrap up this part of our segment because we need to move on but you hear me when i say ain't no fun when the rabbit gets the gun but we gonna get back around to that in a minute <laughs> let's take a break uh for our first music 
musical joint of the day. Today we have some throwbacks for you. Uh, the first track is a throwback in honor of the next versus battle on Monday night. I'm kind of excited about this. Ooh, While I'm a huge, yay. I know, right? While I'm a huge Brandy fan, I thought I would give Monica some love this week because I think <laughs> she's gonna lose, but that's okay. Oh We're gonna no, make- you don't have faith. I have faith in Brandy. <laughs> oh, damn. I know, I'm sorry. I'm just a fan. And Brandy just has like such a long list of albums and hits. Anyway, but I love Monica too. So we're going to give her some love. This first track of the day is So Gone by Monica. We'll be right back. So gone over you, you, you. Silly of me, devoted so much time to find you faithful boy. I nearly lost my mind. Drive past your house every night in an unmarked car. Wondering what she had on me to make you break my heart. Yeah, I'm so close. The sun beat you home. I asked myself over again, what am I doing wrong? To make you stay out all night, and I think to call. What does she have over me to make it nothing to call? All right. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and now for our national news story. So his name is Jacob Blake. He's 29 years old, and he was shot several times in the back as he entered his car with his three children seated back in the back. The Wisconsin Department of Justice on Wednesday identified the officer who shot Jacob Blake as Officer Rustin Shesky. Hours later, the Department of Justice announced the shooting, which led to three nights of violence in, in the state and now is under a federal civil rights investigation. One report noted that no other officer fired their weapon and that none of the others were wearing body cameras because the department does not have any. All of the officers involved in the incident have been suspended. Shesky has worked for the department for seven years. After Blake was shot on Sunday, hundreds of people rallied outside police headquarters in Kenosha. Of course, cars were set afire, armed robberies were reported, and a nighttime curfew was put into place. Uh, Blake's shooting comes as the U.S. grapples with the treatment of African-Americans at the hands of law enforcement, as well as wider questions about racism in our society. On Wednesday, the Milwaukee Bucks of the NBA refused to leave their locker room for the first round of the playoff games with the Orlando Magic. And with hours of the Bucks boycott, the NBA announced that all the games that day were officially postponed. And many others in the sports industry decided to protest on that day by not playing their games. This is unprecedented, this boycott, um, as NBA players have continued to be at the forefront, along with NFL players and other within the sports leagues about racial injustices following the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many others. Blake had been restrained to his bed 
since his arrival to the local hospital on Sunday, and his family told media members that he was handcuffed. But the Kenosha Police Department told CBS News that he was secured with restraints, that was, quote, as required by the department. Wisconsin Circuit Court records indicate that charges of third-degree sexual assault, misdemeanor criminal trespassing, and misdemeanor disorderly conduct were filed against Blake on July 6th. So today there was a statement released from the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office stating that he was no longer handcuffed to the bed and that those charges had been dropped. Blake is now paralyzed from the shooting and continues to recover from his injuries, including his damaged spinal cord, stomach, kidney, and liver. Activists gathered at the Lincoln Memorial to commemorate the historical Civil Rights March on Washington today and demand police reform. The event held protests, um, and they continued to protest over police shootings, including Blake and his family, along with the family of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, and many more, uh, came to the podium, spoke about criminal justice reform, voter action, and some changes to be made around policing and Black people. So that's the end of my recap. Um, quite honestly, I hate telling these stories. Uh, I think this one is only slightly different because Jacob is still alive. But the reality is these cops didn't have body cameras. And all the footage that we've seen, I believe, were by bystanders who were um, just around and leaked that footage out there. So here we are. Yeah. Feedback, guys? Uh, the only note I wrote, because sometimes I'll like write down like single word things um, as you all like do your recaps and whatever. And I just wrote like fuck body cams. <laughs> do they like, help body though? Cams, like, like do they help? Uh, well, yeah, that's why fuck them. You know, we were all fooled. Like we were all tricked. Like body cam, like the technology came out and there were, you know, the shoot, the shootings have always existed and people are like, oh, now that we have these body cams, like accountability will exist because we just need to be able to prove that it happened. And, you know, that never, uh, that's, it never was about if it happened or not, yeah, was, which we've all. I think what hurts me the most, the most about this story, and this has happened to many people, but, you know, his three kids were in the back of the car. Um, watching this and he was breaking up, I believe, a domestic dispute, which is why he was on the scene. Um, I read a couple of stories that said the police found a knife in his car, some some dumb shit, uh, which they probably planted. Uh, but at this point, you know, those children now have to live with this PTSD along with the regular PTSD you get from being black in this damn country. So I mean, outrage would be an understatement because I think we were way past this, but I almost feel like the only way anything is going to happen is if we just burn things up. I don't believe in justice at all, um, that it will be served in any of these cases. And based on the commentary from the National Convention, they wouldn't even say his name. You know, the, the attention went to us having law and order in the streets instead of, you know, people being murdered. Um, state violence should be sanctioned. You know, it's, it's getting to a point where this is, this is not even, we're not even talking about police anymore, if you ask me, because it's so frequent. This is not about police. This is about 
you know, white privilege. And this is about people feeling like they have more power than they should. Um, and when there's no accountability, we'll just keep seeing these stories, you know, whether it's body cams, helicopters, our phones, you know, but to see this over and over and to know that, you know, children are witnessing this like in front of their eyes. You know, I know it may be brutal, but I just kept imagining that these children probably had their father's blood on their clothes. <sighs> somebody, somebody say something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was really. Go ahead, Sarah. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, what there was like a press conference um, after the protesters were murdered by the kid who left Illinois to shoot people with his rifle or his yeah. AK-47. Yeah. And the I believe it was the police chief was basically saying, like, had these people not been out after curfew, they wouldn't be dead. And it just goes to show you that these institutions are just so thoroughly corrupt that you can have all the cameras that you want. If someone's mentality is that property is more important than people's lives, specifically black people. If someone's mentality is that a black person just does not deserve to exist in this country, it doesn't matter like what kind of, what level of evidence you have to present them. There's never going to be enough evidence because that's, it is not in their heart or in their mind to really take it seriously or see it as a problem. Absolutely. Sometimes I'm like, what did we do wrong? <laughs> you know, sometimes I find myself saying that. And, and, and I know it's not anything at all, but, you know, it mm -hmm. just takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on you as a human being that you literally Which can't be comfortable. Like we live in insecurity. It's awful. Which we, did you mean when you said, what did we do wrong? I mean, black people. Yeah, I mean, black people, all black people, any black person that's ever felt uh, subject to racism, discrimination or anything other than that, you know, those are things that we live with. But I, I, it just gets to a point where you literally wake up and you're in fear of what may happen to you or one of your family members, your friends or anyone else for that matter. You know, anyone on the block, it, it becomes just so general. Yeah, and it's so tiring because we're in this loop. I feel like we see the same stories and they're treated the same way. And it's so frustrating because the arguments or whatever, which there should be no arguments, but the, the whole like, did he have a knife in his car? Like I was saying before, it's just like so exhausting because it's, you could, you could even, you could write this story before it, it even happens, you know? And so I, Teresa, I totally agree with your statement about burning things down or dismantling the system and whatnot, because this is, it's, it just feels like a loop and it feels like the only way to get out of it is to get, get, get through it. I don't know, break it. <laughs> it's just, it's not, the justice system isn't working the way that the way that it, we're seeing it right now. So it's, yeah, it's upsetting. Well, quite honestly, Sarah, I don't think the justice system was designed to give justice. I believe the justice system yeah, was designed to keep us where we are and to put us in chains and keep us being unequal and kill us, you mm -hmm. know, period, point blank. I mean, I'm normally the optimistic mm -hmm. one yeah. um, on the show, but, you know, it gets really draining. No, I don't. Yeah. 
just in general for humanity that all of us have to experience this every day, you know? Teresa, it sounds like you're expressing some, you know, the fatigue of, of being in America, of being in America, being an American while black. When you've traveled, uh, what was your experience like that being outside of the American system? Quite honestly, I've been asked a lot about my experience when I travel. You know, uh, when I tell people I'm from the U.S., they kind of give me this, oh, really, depending on where I'm at in the world, you know, because there's prejudice exists around what black people can do, (laughs) you know, all over the globe. Mm -hmm. But then again, you have those deeper conversations where they ask you how it feels. Do you, you know, what do you think about this? And, you know, sometimes I kind of give them this dumbfound look like, well, what the fuck you think I'm supposed to feel? But I do find it an opportunity for me to express the reality of feeling that way. And depending on what region I'm in in the world, you know, other parts of the world go through oppression in many different forms. You know, maybe not so black and white, but people are constantly killed because of their religious freedoms, because they try to speak out or their non-religious freedom, right? rather. Um, or just being a woman who has a thought and a voice, you know, things of that nature. So I miss traveling because it gives me a chance to understand discrimination from a different perspective. I think, you know, in America, we have a focus on race because they make it that way. But when you think about oppression and discrimination, you know, there are levels to this. And if you take race away, it's literally the state is killing the people. That's really what's happening at this point. Um, And it's just like they can't be stopped. You know, that feeling of entrapment, it just it brings people to a point of rage of no return. And, you know, what I witnessed today at work, you know, I am now leading a diversity crew at my job um, because of the things that have happened this year. I s- stepped up and spoke out and now I got this job right now. I have to lead this whole platform. But even doing that seems like an uphill battle because anytime someone doesn't receive what I'm trying to give them, it feels like a slap in the face, you know, and it's, and it's hard. It's hard to press against it when it's constantly pressing on you. Um, yeah. So my frustration today is because, you know, we do this show, we speak out against injustice. We do our best to talk about the issues of the day, but there comes a point when it's like, is this an issue of the day or is this just, an issue of life. I'm just, I'm just not really hopeful that even with a small little movement that I'm trying to make within my own institution, within my own community, that the larger society will ever be able to overcome this. I mean, of course I'm not going to stop, but you know, it's just one of those days. It's one of those days for activists. It's one of those days for, for us, you know, journalists and people all over the world that have to tell these stories, you know, it's, I mean, I, I feel like I want to burn down some shit, you know, but I'm just going to burn some candles and some other things and sit down and strategize. <laughs> Try to make yeah, light I'm of gonna, it. On our um, Facebook page, I'm going to make sure to link to some free available readings that are about like the history of policing and prisons in the United States, because I, I really think there's too much ignorance around like how foundational racism is to the institution of policing in this country like it's something that we've all grown up in and it's taken for granted that it's just a normal part of life when in reality you know these things were designed for a reason 
to entrap and keep certain groups in order and in line. It's not really about uh, public safety or what have you. And I, I think if the more people educate themselves on the origins of these things, the less surprised they will be and the more that they'll see how it's not something that can be reformed. Like it's, it's been tried a million times, it has not worked. Even when it's you know very plain evidence in everyone's face that they can see, you still have people defending these horrendous displays of violence. So you really do have to tear it up from the root. I don't know if it's something we'll see happen in our lifetime, but I'm hopeful that there have been such long ongoing protests like this particular year and you know, I'm grateful for people that are continuing to fight and educate for the system to be completely dismantled because that's that's the only way that it's ever gonna truly change, you know. Absolutely, and I just want to send a sh huge shout out to everybody that's in Washington right now. I have marched on Washington. I've been to mm. a few of them. So all of you that are there right now that made the trip that, you know, did everything you can to stand up against injustice. We appreciate you. So we're gonna go ahead and get into our next musical break. Our next song, our next throwback today comes from Marvin Gaye. This is, this is Inner City Blues. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Well, let's jump right into our world news story. Matt, you're up to the mic. Oh, shit, that is me. I forgot. Uh, pull it up. I was just thinking that we should be recording the what we talk about during the music breaks because it's like after taking on such heavy uh, stuff, when we talk about the music that we're listening to, Everyone's just kind of, you can feel that like appreciation to talk about something you love. <laughs> exactly. That's why I love the music on our show. You know, brings a little bit of joy. It's, it's dope. It's wonderful. Thank you, Teresa. If people don't know, Teresa is the uh, music curator. Um, and it's, it's always great. Thanks. Okay. So, um, African Dam Dispute Nears Resolution. This is a piece about the Ethiopian uh, big dam that they started building a couple years ago, or they and they, they completed building. 
Um, and about a month ago, uh, Therese, I think you covered the death of Ethiopian singer and movement leader Hachula Handesa. Yes, I Is that did. Right? Yep. Yeah. Um, so jumping back to Ethiopia to check in with them. And further back, back in February, we initially covered this story about the dam. Uh, basically, in 2011, Ethiopia decided to build a big old dam, giant dam. Ethiopia is upstream from uh, of the Egypt of the Egypt. So I haven't. I was a little bit busy today, so I wasn't able to do a second pass <laughs> on this. Is upstream of Egypt by about 2,000 miles. Um, and if you remember that factoid from grade school, the Nile is a river that actually flows from south to north. So Ethiopia is south of Egypt, but still it's upstream. And regardless of how far upstream you are, whatever happens upstream affects what happens downstream. And so Egypt is nervous about what this uh, dam is going to to mean to Egypt during um, Egypt now and their economy and their population. Ethiopia making a dam would be a big political, environmental, and economic event regardless, but with Egypt's growing population and increase in pollution and climate change, it makes the river even more important and makes this whole issue even more, that uh, increases the stakes involved. The dam would have a big effect in part because it's absolutely massive. Uh, New York Times writes, uh, quote, the dispute between Egypt and Ethiopia over the 4.5 billion Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, Africa's largest with a reservoir about the size of London, like the city, <laughs> has become a national preoccupation in both countries, stoking patriotism, deep-seated fears, and even murmurs of war. End quote. In the seven months that have passed since uh, the New York Times first reported on that, uh, there has been hopeful negotiations. Ethiopia and Sudan, who is involved because in the neg negotiations because the Nile runs through Sudan before it hits Egypt, may be coming towards, uh, all three countries may be coming towards some kind of resolution. On August 25th, Al Jazeera reports, quote, the talks between Ethiopia, Sudan, and Egypt should lead to a formula that makes the dam a tool for regional Integration, um, the statement added, the two nations also lauded the African Union for its mediation in the matter, calling it a move that embodies African solutions for African problems, end quote. Now, the main concern for Egypt in all of this is if e Ethiopia fills the dam quickly and how fast they fill it. Because if you think about it, Ethiopia having a dam doesn't actually change how much water gets to Egypt via the Blue Nile, which they call the kind of delta region at the end of the Nile. The dam just adds some more time for it to, to get there. Uh, it adds a reservoir that the water has to pass through first before it continues north through Sudan and then Egypt. But if Ethiopia fills the dam quickly, that means the amount of water for a considerable period of time will lessen and that nine and that the 95 percent of egypt that lives on the delta and relies on the water will suffer al jazeera also writes quote 
The two downstream nations, Egypt and Sudan, have repeatedly insisted Ethiopia must not start filling the reservoir without reaching a deal first. The dispute reached a tipping point in July when Ethiopia announced it had completed the first stage of the filling of the dam's 74 billion cubic meter reservoir, sparking fear and confusion in Sudan and Egypt, end quote. It's a threat to those downstream, but there's a massive incentive for Ethiopia uh, to, to, have, to fill the dam quickly. Uh, they write, uh, Al Jazeera writes, quote, to Ethiopia, the GERD, the um, Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, Project offers a critical opportunity to pull millions of citizens out of poverty and become a significant power exporter, end quote. It's another example of how even though, or this whole thing is an example for me at least, on how we may think nation states stand alone, uh, but we really are all, all connected in, in just whatever regard. I don't know my Egyptian political history that well, um, so perhaps I'm wrong, but if Egypt was investing in other countries like Ethiopia, um, literally, literally and or just politically through having better uh, diplomatic ties, perhaps the stam would be built under better considerations. Egypt has benefited by being in the Nile's Delta. Egypt is Egypt because of the river. Now they are face to face with the fact that they aren't alone in all of this. I think America suffers from the same short-sightedness, we think, because our resources and literal distance from the world um, means that our choices don't matter. We're gonna do whatever we want. But this weekend, we were hit by a double hurricane and California has massive wildfires again. Geopolitically, the same immaturity has consequences supporting violence Governments, i.e. are what we did in Honduras and Guatemala uh, back in the day has caused poverty and violence and people had to flee that. And those same people are coming to America hoping for safety and America freaks the fuck out as if zombies are invaded. So I think this damage is kind of a good analogy about how, you know, all these countries are connected, uh, we're connected. And that even though... It may be, you may want to like kind of hide away um, and just hope that everything always goes your way whenever you're a country in power that uh, that that's, that uh, doesn't work out that way, I guess. I think it's interesting how in this story that there is conflict over like a natural resource, like like humanity is interconnected no matter where you are. Um whether it's regional or because we have to share resources with one another. Um, it almost seems to me that if the two countries would just work together, they could probably benefit more from each other's strength around the dam and the things that they want to use it for, bring to it, protect, as opposed to fighting over who gets what or, you know, name calling it to be a part of one region or the other, mm. you know, if and they it gets, it gets, um, Oh yeah. Sorry to interrupt. It gets further complicated because Egypt, lays claim on basically the river because there's a colonial era uh, treaty that was put in place by colonial powers in Sudan. And so it has like this other layer of like complex, uh, you know, instead of working together, like using these old 
freaking uh, ill-gotten powers. Can we get rid of like anything with the word colonial in it? <laughs> right. I was just about to say, does that even matter anymore? And yeah, why? Why? The second freaking amendment like was about rifles, not about like AK forty sevens. Like, can we can we please just get rid of this archaic nonsense? But also, Teresa, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, it's so crazy how humans just think they can control everything, but then when we're faced with something that is not in our control, aka a natural resource or like a huge river, it's like we're like, what do we do? How, how do we how do we deal with this? Because it's like it seems like it's out of our control, but maybe it wouldn't be if people just people just talk to each other. And which they are doing. I, I guess I kind of have that big, weird, dumb conclusion where I get all moralistic about it, but uh, they are going into talks. And so hopefully things will uh, be resolved and the people of Ethiopia will get a good power and economic boon by having the dam and... Uh, Egypt and Sudan will still get their water and their communities that are based off the river won't literally dry up, you know? Yeah, my favorite part of this segment was when you said African solutions for African problems, because to Sarah's point, there's so many things that are happening right now around the world that the way the media here tends to portray it, it's like, oh, those people are making these horrible decisions. But if you just scratch the surface a little bit, any major glo global geopolitical problem, like you often see that imperialism and colonialism was at the root of it. So the more you see like these types of cooperation, like not getting other nations and stuff involved, but like people in the local governments working with each other, I think that's a positive development. Yeah, let's hope that these talks actually, you know, lead to shared resources and shared dependency. Because if there's a natural disaster, who do you think you have to look for for your aid? You know, you can't always get something shipped in. like pure humanity needs to care for humanity, especially in a geopolitical sort of thing. It's almost like your neighbors, you know? So let's just <laughs> they are, share you know? the water, folks. Share the space. <laughs> Come on. Oh, wow. So sad. Well, thank you, Matt, for that story. And then finally, Sarah, please give us some good news. So for this good news story today, we're actually going to stay in Africa. Um, the good news this week is that there has been declared an end to wild polio in Africa. So three days ago, the Africa Regional Certification Commission declared Africa a region free from wild polio, which is a disease that is now only found in Afghanistan and Pakistan that affects small children. Well, it can affect anyone, but it largely affects small children and can lead to lifelong paralysis and death. Uh, there's no cure for the disease, but through vaccinations, Africa has been able to defeat it. Over 20 years ago, the polio virus paralyzed more than 75,000 children across the continent, according to the BBC. And in the last decade, Nigeria accounted for more than half of all global cases, but a huge campaign to deliver vaccines to remote locations and those under threat of military violence was successful in eradicating the illness. Uh, the disease usually spread through contaminated water. The Boko Haram conflict in Nigeria has made it difficult to reach a segment of the population at risk for polio in the recent years. However, the campaign to end polio dispatched volunteers 
who I found out were 95% women, which was thrilling to me, um, to areas of conflict to deliver the vaccine. There was also a period of speculation and propaganda surrounding the vaccine and, and its efficacy for their complicating relief efforts. Sadly, in 2013, nine female vaccinators were killed in two shootings believed to be carried out by Boko Haram at health centers in Kano. Kano, sorry. Um, so it's been a long and arduous road to success, but through survival stories of people who've had polio and dissemination of correct information about the success of the vaccine, the campaign was um, ultimately able to win over community trust and provide health care to the continent. So talk about... Um, African solutions to African problems. I mean, this was, and also just a global effort and campaign. So, so this is definitely another example or an example of cooperation and maybe something that we can learn from U S COVID. <laughs> exactly. I'd love to hear, you know, when we have advances in healthcare, I think we don't hear enough um, stories about that. We're like the last people, meaning the common person um, to learn about these yeah. things. But yeah, I definitely um, I'm happy to hear that they're having gains there. There's so much more to be worried about. So any positive yeah. story. Yeah. And I, and I was super interested to learn about the history of like how this campaign sort of worked because a lot of, you know, global campaigns to, you know, I don't know, develop countries, quote unquote, are always sort of short-sighted and like don't account for actual world events that are going on. So it, it was interesting to me and really cool that they were able to use sort of like the resources that they had and the information that they had about the actual area, because you can't just apply, you can't just be like, well, everyone should get the vaccine. Why isn't everyone coming to the clinic to get the vaccine? Um, so yeah, I think, I think there's definitely a lot to be learned there about like researching the, the location and, and what might be happening. Um, it could totally be applied to the U S too. Um, mm. so and I'm super into that stuff. Yeah, certainly. I, I think what's interesting about uh, this story and how you told it is you really laid out how it, it wasn't that there wasn't a vaccine. It wasn't a scientific problem. It was a coordination problem. It was, uh, and I think that's something that we forget about in, because we have smartphones, so we think technology can save the world, but really the limits, you know, technology is only as strong as, as the people um, able to use it. And yeah. also, unfortunately, there's a big anti-vax movement. That, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> is that? Yeah, there's so many barriers to access other than just knowing something exists there's a million different ways that you know something can be there but it just doesn't reach who it needs to reach or there's ideological opposition i mean we always say there's more than enough food for everyone to never go hungry but the way shit is set up it's like you can't there's often like just supply chain issues where you can't transport the stuff that is in abundance in one place to the people that need it in another. So, mm -hmm. yeah, and and even, I mean, I'm I'm not in a, I don't know the economics behind it, but also like flooding markets, uh, you know, even if like 
wealthier countries did just like deposit food everywhere, um, there would probably be unintended consequences or something weird. I mean, it's an experiment that sounds like worth doing, <laughs> even though it might be awful uh, in terms of like local farmers and whatnot. Um, kind of like the when what's what's that like grain that uh, health fad. Quinoa. 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 Yeah. When that became more popular. Quinoa. Quinoa. Matt does not eat a lot of quinoa. I hate quinoa. Everyone like started buying it, but then. Yeah, it's like like it's a staple in a lot of South American communities, and because it became this gentrified thing, it it fucked up with like this base crop that a lot of people depended on. Like the prices went up. I think the same happened with avocados. Like, there's all types of weird shit happening now with people being bullied and, like, intimidated and threatened to, like, grow avocados because there's such a demand for it in a richer nation. The, the avocado cartels, like, literally controlled by cartels, I think? Yeah, it's, like, it's 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 scary shit. But, you know, that I, th- I think that's more about, like, who like, global north powers, like, being able to you know, force that type of change to happen. As I was thinking more like even just within the US, like you'll have like people being paid to not grow food or to destroy food when there's also many people going hungry. Like it's not that just like this vaccine, it's not like it didn't exist, but there's all these other systemic issues that prevent the thing that the solution that exists to getting to the people that need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was so interesting to learn about kind of like the, you were saying, Jasmine, like the ideological barrier to getting this information out. And it just was like reminding me so much of the Trump administration and like what propaganda gets put out there about COVID. And it's crazy. It's like not even that far-fetched. Like I think if I read this story, I would be like, oh, that's just like some far away thing. And, but now that COVID's happened, I'm like, people will really believe a lot of pseudoscience. It's crazy, but yeah. I'm happy that they were able to ultimately get the information out there. Yes, um, so, so yeah. we're jumping a little bit. Uh, Teresa, can, can you take us out? Sure. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for that great story and that good news. And thank you, everybody, for contributing to this week's show. That's it for this week's Subjection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on the RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app on Spotify or anywhere you can get iTunes podcasts. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final throwback track of the day. This is Tupac with Changes. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye bye. I forgot to say bye. Come on, come on. I see no changes. Wake up in the morning and I ask myself, is life worth living? Should I blast myself? I'm tired of being poor and even worse, I'm black. My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch. Cops give a damn about a Negro. Pull a trigger, kill him. He's a hero. Get it to the kids who the hell cares. One less hungry mouth on the welfare. Shit, I'm dumping at